thank you, Lord, for Peter. Your faithful servant. It's always a joy to have Peter with us this morning, in any morning. I pray that you will help him to speak your word, to give him the wisdom, to teach us more about you and to show us what's in the Bible, your word, Lord, that he will bring it out to life to us. And we just thank you, Lord, and may we all learn something this morning. In your precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Morning, everyone. It always amazes me so many go out whenever the children are going upstairs and yet there still seems to be some left here, so I'm glad you stayed. And uh, it's a real pleasure to be back with you again today. We're going to continue our study in the book of Jeremiah. And in a sense, what we're looking at today is a follow-up to the Stop, Look and Listen, which we thought about last Sunday. And I'm going to read with you from Jeremiah chapter 7. Jeremiah chapter 7, and we're going to read the first 20 verses. So let's read the scriptures together. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house, and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. If you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land I gave to your forefathers forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words, that are worthless? Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, born incense to Baal and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we are safe, safe to do all these detestable things. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? But I have been watching, declares the Lord. Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name and see what I did to it because of the wickedness of my people Israel. While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. 
Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your fathers. I will thrust you from my presence, just as I did all your brothers, the people of Ephraim. So do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them. Do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. Do you not see what they're doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? The children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, the women knead the dough and make cakes of bread for the queen of heaven. They pour out drink offerings to other gods to provoke me to anger, declares, I beg your pardon, to provoke me to anger. But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My anger and my wrath will be poured out in this place on man and beast, on the trees of the field and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. One of the things that we learn about Jeremiah just a little later on in his prophecy is how difficult he found this message that he was given by the Lord to proclaim. Indeed, I think it's in chapter 18 and 19. He says effectively that I don't want to do this any longer. I'm going to stop speaking. And he says himself, it was as fire in my bones and I just had to preach the word which God gave me. And I think it's important to, to recognize that for each of us, any time we hear the scriptures being taught or any time when we listen, that we analyze and recognize that that which is said needs to be true. Because often people just use the scriptures for their own ends or select little parts of it which happen to suit their perspective and preach that without the emphasis of the context that the word is being given in. Jeremiah is preaching around the, town, the turn of the 6th century BC. And during that time, he was so conscious that there were forces in the north and also in the south of Israel that were going to be brought to bear upon the country. And yet the people were apparently blind to the possibility of God acting against them. That actually what was going to happen in their own society was down to the anger of God burning against them. And so when you come to a passage like we've read together here in, in chapter seven, uh, it's, it's hugely difficult for me as a preacher to preach it. But it's essential, I think, that I emphasize what God was saying to this chosen people of his because they had assumed upon his mercy and grace. They had assumed that everything would be fine, that they could really live as they like and they could do what they wish and that somehow or other God would continue to bless them and to nurture them. 
So as Jeremiah preaches this message, and he preaches it in front of the temple in Jerusalem, it comes with enormous force and something that you and I need to recognize. Because the first thing which he emphasizes to the people from verses 1 through 7 is that they were just being deceived. They were listening to the words of the lying prophets who were deceiving them and telling them what they wanted to hear. That that which was being told them was not from God at all. Because Jeremiah wasn't preaching in a vacuum. You know, there was a whole collection of guys who purported to be speaking as from God. And yet their message was untrue because it was just to bring a false comfort to these people who had strayed so far away from God. And we all have a tendency to trust in deceiving words or flattering words or words which make us feel comfortable. And I want you to notice just how direct Jeremiah is here in these first seven verses. Richard, perhaps you could bring them up again and we could just have a look at them. The first thing is that Jeremiah was told to proclaim this at the gate of the Lord's house because the people had come to trust in the fact that the Lord's house was in Jerusalem and they assumed that his presence would necessarily be there at the same time. And you'll notice, hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel says, reform your ways and your actions, and I will let you live in this place. In other words, if they were going to be real before God, then God would respond in mercy and grace and allow them to stay in the city of Jerusalem. And then he says, do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Why do you think that word's repeated three times? Because the people were trusting in the temple and not in the Lord. This is the place where God has placed his house Therefore, God will stay in his house and this place will be safe. So they used it like a mantra. They were using it as, as vain repetition. This is the temple of the Lord. So the Lord will stay here. This is the temple of the Lord. The temple of the Lord. The Lord won't allow it to be destroyed. But the Lord was going to destroy it himself. And in 586, about 30 years after Jeremiah started to preach, in 586 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the Chaldeans, the king of the Babylonians, was going to destroy the temple and completely decimate Jerusalem. So that at the time, the blood of the people ran knee-deep for the horses as the people were destroyed and the temple lost its place. Their thinking was, this is where the Lord came to be. This is where the Lord set his house. And so he'll always be here. He'll protect the city because this is his dwelling place. But the, the prophets were prophesying lies. They were saying, in effect, if you come to church every Sunday, then God will look after you. But unless my heart and my actions are in touch with God, then there can be no real salvation, no real appreciation of who God is. 
And we can go through the motions, my dear brothers and sisters. We can, we can do what we think God wants. But unless my heart is being motivated by God, unless I'm responding to his word, indeed later on in this chapter, I didn't read all of the chapter obviously because it's a very long one, but and later on in this chapter, Jeremiah actually says to the people, what God requires is obedience. You know, he, he just wants us to do what we're told and live in his will. And that way we will know his blessing. So the first sin, if you can put it like this, was to live this lie, to live in deception. God is always looking for actions which demonstrate our faith. James says in his little letter in the latter part of the New Testament, Faith without works is empty. To say I've got faith, but it's not demonstrated in the things that I do and the life that I live, is to present a falsehood. To say I'm trusting in the Lord and then live each day as though he doesn't exist and come to his house because this is the temple uh, effectively in our minds, then somehow or other that's going to be okay. And if we live in such deception, then the way is bleak and the way is fraught with danger. We can keep coming on, on to church and keep living as though we were Christians, yet we're deceiving ourselves. So what the Lord then says during these first seven verses is you've got to repent. You've got to change your way. Do not, verse 6, do not oppress the alien, the fatherless, or the widow, do not shed innocent blood in this place. And then this section, do not follow other gods to your own harm. Then I will let you live in this place. So it's a conditional perspective as far as God's concerned. You've got to be real if you're going to know the reality of my presence. And these dear people had somehow or other lost their way. There was also a sense of delusion. So not only were they deceiving themselves, but they were deluded. In other words, they were thinking things to be real which weren't real. And this next section is very telling, I think. He says in verse 9, Will you steal and murder, commit adultery and perjury, burn incense to Baal, and follow other gods you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house which bears my name and say, we're safe. And you see the fallacy of that. The God of Baal, which was the God of thunder and lightning as far as the um, Canaanites were concerned, the land in which the Israelites now lived, the worship of Baal was something which plagued the Israelites for generation upon generation. You may remember earlier on in the life of the Israelites, there was a prophet called Elijah. And Elijah said to the people one day, he said, how long will you halt? How long will you stumble between two opinions? If Baal be God, then follow Baal. If Jehovah be God, then follow Jehovah. And he challenged the prophets of Baal, the 450 prophets of Baal, to call upon their God to send down lightning 
upon the sacrifice. And of course, there was no answer. And for six hours, they prayed. And for six hours, they danced. And for six hours, they worshipped. But they were worshipping a falsehood. And yet again and again, as I said, the Israelites came back to worship Baal because he was the, the god of fertility as well as the god of thunder and lightning. And you see how the two are linked. And God says to them very directly, you can't do this. You can't worship that which is false and then come into my house and say we are safe. You're effectively saying you're safe to do all these detestable things, to worship false gods and go your own way. Has this house which bears my name become a den of robbers to you? And he's talking about them robbing God, pretending to be real, pretending to be following God, and yet robbing him by worshiping other gods. And I say to you this morning, it's so easy. It's so easy to trust other things rather than trust the God of heaven and the God of glory. And we can so easily alienate ourselves from him just by going through the motions and saying, well, it's okay. The Lord has saved me and I can do what I like. Nothing could be further from the truth. And then he gives them an illustration and I want to spend a moment here, if I may, from verse 12. He says to them, Go now to the place in Shiloh where I first made a dwelling for my name. Now the story, if I might summarize it, is this. The place where the Ark of the Covenant, the symbol of God's presence, the place where it was placed as far as the Israelites were concerned in their early days in the land of Canaan, was in a place called Shiloh. And it was there thought to be the place where God had made his dwelling. And this, this symbol of God's power, the, the Ark of the Covenant, was located at the end of Joshua's life in the town and surroundings of Shiloh. It was deemed to be very important. It's the place where the prophet Samuel began his ministry. So it was very important in the early days of the Israelites in Canaan. And yet you'll see that what happened was because of the wickedness of Eli's sons, who was one of the priests of uh, Samuel's time, because of the wickedness of Eli's sons, the Philistines came and destroyed Shiloh and pinched the ark. And the ark of the covenant was taken away by the Philistines. So this thing, which was the symbol of the presence of God, had been removed by the, the Philistine people, the people of the sea, and carried away into their part of the country, which was the coastal fringe of the land of Canaan at that time. So he's saying, in effect, look, look at what happened to Shiloh. If you go there now, all you'll find is ruins. And I want you to notice something which I had never noticed before. It, it says in verse 13, While you were doing all these things, declares the Lord, I spoke to you again and again, but you did not listen. I called you, but you did not answer. Therefore, what I did to Shiloh, I will now do the, to the house that bears my name, the temple you trust in, the place I gave to you and your fathers. I will now do 
Now, it was Nebuchadnezzar. He came in 586 and destroyed Jerusalem and destroyed the temple. It was Nebuchadnezzar. But God says, I'm the prime mover in this. And I wonder if I may to just bring this into our own situation and our own perspective. We live in this country as though we were in control of our own destiny. And I suppose we're illustrating that very clearly by the mess we're making of things, you know. We're in control of our own destiny and we're making a right mess of it. Is it possible, and I asked the question judicially this morning, is it possible that God is acting behind the scenes in order to bring us to a consciousness of him and his presence, to a recognition that that which happens in our land and our country, which we deem to be of our own perspective, is actually being controlled by a higher power? Is God in control of history? Is there a real sense in which God is working his purpose out as year succeeds to year, as one of our old hymns says? And if that be the case, and I suggest to you that's a true interpretation of the situation, then you and I need to recognize within our own lives that we have a particular responsibility to the God of heaven. You know, the Lord Jesus gave his life for us. He shed his blood for us. We recognize that as a, an historical fact which is personal to us if we come to faith in him. In that sense, our destiny is in his hands. And so in relation to this particular passage, God says effectively, don't, don't trust in geography. Don't trust in Shiloh. Don't trust in my house in Jerusalem, but rather recognize that your mind and heart needs to be focused on me, that your obedience needs to be to me, that your responsibility is to me. And if you acknowledge that and recognize that in your own life from day to day, then as Jenny was reminding us this morning, then I will bless you. I will redirect your life. I will bring you into a, a new perspective of living. I will bring you to an understanding of things which you cannot otherwise have. And then he says something which is even more dramatic. And I don't know how um, Jeremiah could bear to say this in verse 16. So do not pray for this people, nor offer any plea or petition for them, do not plead with me, for I will not listen to you. So because this people, the people of God so-called, the people of Israel, have decided to redirect their lives without God, to worship the false god Baal, to live as they choose with no reference to God himself, God says, don't pray for them anymore because they have chosen their own way. And if you pray and plead for them, I will not listen to you. I know of no more sobering words in the whole of Scripture than this particular text. Don't pray. Don't plead because I'll not listen to you. 
Can you imagine a people having got so far away from God that, you know, there's, there's no hope for them? Because God's not going to intervene. And even though whenever Nebuchadnezzar came against the northern walls of Jerusalem, the people cried out to him and the priests prayed to him, there was no answer because Nebuchadnezzar eventually, after three months, destroyed the walls and ruined, as I've already said, Jerusalem. And then the Lord gives his reasons, and I close with this this morning. Do you not see what they are doing in the towns of Judah and in the streets of Jerusalem? Children gather wood, the fathers light the fire, the women knead the dough, and they make cakes of bread for the queen of heaven. The substory to this is that Baal was reputed to have a wife called Astarte, and she was the fertility goddess of the Canaanites. She was the place where there was sexual orgy in the groves around Jerusalem. It was a worship, if I can put it like this, of the flesh rather than of the spirit. And the people of God loved to have it so. And they made cakes to the Queen of Heaven. And in the book of Deuteronomy, there are tw twice references to not worshipping the Queen of Heaven. So you have this morass, which has become the worship of the people of God in Jerusalem at this particular time. They pour out drink offerings to other gods and to provoke me to anger. But am I the one they are provoking, declares the Lord? Are they not rather harming themselves to their own shame? I said carefully, there are things been happening in our own country in the last 10 years, in the last five years, which have been unthinkable throughout our history. I said carefully, we appear to be as far away from God as we can get because his word no longer matters and we choose to live according to our own perspective. It is said in the first chapter of Genesis when God is speaking and God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Male and female created he them. Maleness and femaleness demonstrate the reality of who God is. We tamper with it at our peril. We draw our own lines and face the consequences. And it appears to me that what is happening in our own country is, even though we cry out to God for his intervention, that already we may have been in the situation where though they plead with me, I will not listen. We live in a world of turmoil Therefore, this is what the Sovereign Lord says. My anger and my wrath 
will be poured out on this place, on man and beast, on the trees of the field, and on the fruit of the ground, and it will burn and not be quenched. We are very keen, and rightly so, to preach about the love of God and its capacity. The Bible says twice as much about the wrath of God as it does about the love of God. My anger will burn because there's nothing hidden from the eyes of the Almighty. This is as it was, and we can shrug our shoulders and say, it'll not happen here. God will somehow overlook this. He's not deserted us. Are you sure? These words are, are so solemn. My anger will burn against this place. We move away from God, my dear brothers and sisters, at our peril. We either follow the Lord from of glory and we recognize his right to our allegiance or we tamper with these other things and we face the consequences. These folk thought they were safe in Jerusalem. It was a place where God had placed his um, banner, if I can put it like that. The temple had been built according to his direction. He had chosen Solomon to build it. It was one of the great wonders of the world. It was going to be destroyed in a day and a half by Nebuchadnezzar and his minions. I'm really sorry in some ways that this message has been imprinted on my heart. I'd much rather not preach it for obvious reasons. But this is what the scripture says. And I don't have the right to tamper with it or preach that which I choose. God bless you. Thank you for your attention. I want to pray together and then we'll sing our closing hymn. Father, these are such solemn words and we recognize again that you are the Lord Almighty, the maker of heaven and earth, the one who sustains all things by the word of your power and the one who your word teaches us will one day wrap it all up as a garment and put it away and the earth will be destroyed by fire and there'll be a new heaven and a new earth for which we bless you. But we recognize, Father, that the, the anger of God is a, is a solemn and drastic thing. And as we reflect upon this message this morning, we pray that you will imprint what has been of yourself upon our hearts, that you will help us to recognize that you're not to be trifled with. You're a God to be worshiped and adored and obeyed. So again, we submit ourselves to your authority and seek your blessing in our Savior's name.